Thank you for that wonderful offering music. Well, God's got a plan for everything. I'm not so sure about the focusing in, in on men this morning. If that's God's plan, only he knows it. And he will do it with or without me. <clears throat> but as far as I know, the message is for all people this morning. Um, before we launch into Matthew 5, and we will be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, just a reminder that we have our Easter's coming up. We have our Monday, Thursday service, and I sent out an email looking for any volunteers who would like to share a song uh, in regards to the cross and that focuses on that season of Jesus's life. And there are still plenty of spots, so appreciate your continued prayers. I'm trying to do this. Usually I wait to the last minute and actually now I'm doing it way in advance. So I'll see which works better. A little experiment here, but just wanted to remind you if you didn't get the email Matthew chapter 5, and I don't usually do this, but I'm going to go ahead and read the text first and then introduce it instead of introducing the text and then reading it. So just something a little different. And I'm going to go ahead and read the first 12 verses of chapter 5 in the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth. And taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I wanted to read all of that in advance just because uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount is a, has a context to it. There, there, it has a flow to it. And I'll just concentrate really on the first few verses this morning. But in order to understand the profundity of this sermon and these words... We really have to set the stage for it because this is a very profound arrangement here that Jesus has delivered to the multitudes that have come before him. Very, very challenging, can almost get hung up on every word and every concept. Very, very countercultural, very challenging. And so these, these words will blow the people away in essence. I hope they blow us away, but they... They will blow the people away that are hearing them. And in order for us to understand why that's true, we have to kind of set the stage and do a necessary build-up. And so that's what I want to do today. And as you know, Jesus' ministry is in full swing. He is in the northern parts of the Promised Land. And he is going from town to town preaching the gospel. He's going from synagogue to synagogue 
sharing the truths, telling people to repent, talking about the kingdom of God. And with that, the works of miracles, healings, he's exercising people that are demon possessed. And when you say such profound things and when you do such extraordinary things, it's not unusual to have a crowd of people following behind you, wondering what's going to be next. Where is all this headed? What could this mean? And so Jesus has multitudes now there in that northern area that are on his heels. And I guess you might say strategically because the crowds are so plentiful now, Jesus finds a hill or places himself on a high place in the slopey area. And he begins to teach and address those that have gathered around him. Matthew calls it the mountain. Interesting. It's not a mountain because there are lots of mountains there, but it's the mountain. Of course, Matthew's gospel was written after the fact. So as he reflects on what took place, he's picturing the mountain that Jesus preached the sermon on. This is in the area of Capernaum, Galilee. We've talked a lot about that. And as you know, it's very populated, but it's also very fertile. And there are mountains that uh, surround the Sea of Galilee. There's beautiful foothills that not as big as our mountains here. More, we would probably consider them very small mountains or foothills, but just a beautiful area. So you have to picture this scene. Very fertile, very plush area. Lots of people following Jesus. Here he is on one of the slopes or the mountains there. Um, now it's called the Mount of Beatitudes. And it was, they think it was formerly Mount Aramos. And if you were to visit that place today, you would find the, the uh, a chapel there that the Catholics built, I want to say, in the fourth century. Um, almost any kind of sacred place, any kind of geographical location that they think Jesus may have performed something has anything to do with that. The early church would build a chapel there or they'd build a church or they'd build some kind of recognition that this is a something holy happened here. God visited us in this place. And so there's a chapel there as many as well as many other places in that land. So it's interesting that this is the Sermon on the Mount. It's not entitled the Beatitudes. You don't have a title for this sermon. It's entitled after the location of where it was delivered. So you are going to hear the sermon from the pulpit on the Sermon on the Mount this morning. So after Jesus got into the place that he wanted to locate, he began to address the people. He he begins to teach them and he does a few things here that we're going to unpack to help set the stage. There's some details in here that we would ordinarily gloss over that I think are significant. And first of all, Matthew tells us that he sat down. Now, this is significant. It, it, there, it means that there's a transition taking place um, when someone sits down. It puts them in more of an authoritative teaching position or instruction position. That's what's behind this. It's not just off the cuff. But it means Jesus is about to speak very seriously. He's about to speak to the heart. He's going to share with those that have been following him. He's going to share what he's been thinking about, what he thinks that they need 
to hear. So this isn't a casual conversation, though there were many of those as well. It's more formal. Today we might say uh, the professor has a chair at the university or he is the chair of this department at the university. Chair has to do with sitting from that place. He is in charge or he's the head person. Um, if you are, if you have any Catholic roots, you are familiar with the Latin term ex cathedra. And that's when the Pope speaks very, very authoritatively for the entire church. He speaks ex cathedra, which literally means from the, from the Latin, from the chair. So there's this idea from the sitting position that Jesus is getting very serious. He's going to speak with great authority from the chair, so to speak. And then verse 2, Matthew tells us uh, that he opened his mouth and taught them. And I used to read that and think, that is so silly. What? It's so redundant. Of course he opened his mouth when he taught them. Unless he's a ventriloquist, we all have to open our mouths when we speak. But again, there's something behind that. It's, it's Greek colloquialism. Uh, and it, and it's, a, it's a signal of sorts, again, that Jesus is going to say something very serious and important. It's kind of like perhaps you've seen someone step up to the podium or stand to address the crowd and they might say, <clears throat> it's kind of a signal to get people's attention that you know, the hour has arrived for me to speak. And so it has the idea when, when you hear that term of speaking seriously, solemnly, but also from the heart. So this is an official message from the very heart of the king. He, he continued to speak or preach this message in other places. Uh, Jesus used the same parables, not just in that one place that we would read about, but wherever he went, he had the same messages, the same ideas and the same teachings. But it is highly believed that this is the very first time that he ever said these words that he ever preached this particular sermon in this way. So what is on his heart? What is so serious? Why is he in the seated position? What does he want to share with those that have gathered around him? What are, what's the first word of his sermon? And first word out of his mouth. Exactly. Blessed. But just right there when you know that he's going to say something important. And the very first word is blessed. Blessed are those. That's what he wants to talk about. And contrary to popular belief, Jesus is very concerned about our blessedness. And the word literally means uh, happiness. Happy are those. Blessed are those. So that's what's on his heart. The happiness of humanity. The condition of the soul of humanity. It's his concern. Jesus actually wants us to be happy. He wants us to know what it means to experience blessedness. And so he's going to sit down. He's going to take some serious time and coach us in this. Teach us what it takes, what it looks like for our being, our souls to be and experience this state of happiness and blessedness. Now, the, one of the reasons that this sermon is so perplexing, and we will be perplexed for the next several weeks, 
is because when Jesus starts talking about happiness, he doesn't speak of it in worldly terms. He doesn't say the very obvious things that we have already concluded. Well, if you want to be happy, here's what you got to do. It's happiness is um, simultaneously takes place when you think this way or you act this way or when you get these kind of things. But he's not talking about worldly happiness. He's talking about a kingdom happiness. And there is a huge difference between kingdom happiness and worldly happiness And yet, the soul has to decide what kind of happiness it wants. And what kind of happiness it's going to go after. Jesus has a lot to talk to us about. He's going to be speaking, of course, it's been broken into chapters, verses, I mean, chapters 5 through 7. We will look at this sermon. He's got a lot to share. And I think I've said it before, but I can promise you that some of these words, as we work through this, they will delight your soul. I mean, some you will just get a some of us will hear this and and a ray of hope will just shine right into our souls where we thought hope was not even possible. And we will take great delight. And some of these sayings and teachings and words will really, really get under our skin. And they will really, really provoke us. And they will seem very, very demanding because they're very, very countercultural. They'll fascinate us at times. And they will shame us. This sermon will shame us. As we uncover the kingdom terms. The teachings from the very word of Christ. About the condition that he would like our souls to be in. We will walk away at times ashamed. It's just going to have that. Effect, And I will tell you that, wow, unless you're really hard-hearted, this isn't the kind of material that we can just slough off or shrug off and move on with our lives. It, it just ha- the way Jesus terms these things has a way of digging deep. And of course, that's what he wants to do. Because he wants it. What an appropriate song to sing it as well with my soul. Jesus wants it well with our souls. But sometimes the way we're thinking and the way we're living, we're looking in the wrong places and, and we're, we're, we're settling for substitutes and we're not well. And he loves us enough to say, here's how you can be well. And sometimes we'll read it and we'll say, but that's, that's impossible. And then we'll get excited because you realize, well, it's impossible, but... God is the God of the impossible. So then sometimes the impossible turns into this incredible excitement. You mean this is possible for me? You mean I can actually be happy? I can be satisfied? I can be content? And not just stuck like this for the rest of my life? Absolutely. This is kingdom teaching. These are words from heaven. I mean, words from heaven that Jesus has for us. And they're, they're nothing like anything you will read in any other book. They're not from any other faith or any other religious leader will you hear words quite like this. And I would venture to say that if, if we don't see our need for Christ after going through this sermon, I wonder if we ever will. Because it's that provoking. It digs that deep. 
and really addresses the human need for God. This is kind of a feel silly for even using this as an illustration because it's it's dated. Um, <clears throat> but this is exactly what came to my mind is I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to read this sermon over and over. And I'm, I'm thinking about it. I, I didn't plan on that, but it just grips. It just grips my soul. And I'm, and I'm hearing Jesus's teachings and I'm thinking about my life and my attitudes about things. And then I go back to it and I, I read it again and, and look at these words. There was this uh, commercial when I was a teenager in the 70s. It was a drug ep- epidemic, believe it or not, in the 70s, as if it doesn't still exist and worse now. But they actually had commercials about it. And it was pretty effective. Um, you'd see this sizzling frying pan on the stove. And then you never saw anybody's face. You, just saw, you, you only saw the materials used. Then you saw an egg. And the guy would hold up, this is an egg. And then there's the, there's the frying pan. And he'd crack it. And he'd break the egg and it would just sizzle and burn. And they'd say, this is your... I'm, wait a minute, hold on. He'd hold up, reverse that, rewind. Okay, now play again. Hold up the egg and he would say, this is your brain. There's the frying pan. Okay, this is your brain. Cracks it, puts it in the pan, sizzles, burns... This is your brain on drugs. It's very effective because um, we were all saved from the drug epidemic because of that commercial. But it, it was uh, it really was a great picture of what happens to you when you just keep doing drugs. I mean, you're frying your brain. You're frying it. Your brain's like a fried egg. Totally opposite. It's like this is your soul. Gosh, this is your soul. And here's the Beatitudes. Here's the teaching from heaven. This is your soul when surrendered to the teachings of Christ. It's healthy. It's rejuvenated. It's restored. The, the, the word of God in, in this combination of teachings is, has healing properties to it. It just really does. If we will surrender our souls to it, it has healing properties, relief Comfort, clarity, the burn starts to slowly go away and it will literally transform us. If we're not saved, it can transform in in a saving experience. And if we are saved, it can transform our hearts and sanctify our hearts for the glory of God and for our own blessedness. And I know we will countless Times be tempted to give up, say it's too hard, I can't do it. Persevere. Persevere through this. Dig deep and try to understand because there's a personal application for all of us. So, so, so that's what we're doing this morning. We're setting the stage to the importance of this sermon. This sermon, like every sermon, was preached in a context. And what we want to look at is what was the world like the day that this sermon was preached on that mountain, that slope. What were people thinking? What were they consumed by? What would they hear when Jesus spoke these words? Just a sampling of the words that we looked at in these first 12 verses. Why or why not would they be 
significant to them. So that's what I want to tackle for the remainder of our time here this morning in terms of three different atmospheres or or contexts, realms. The first, we're going to look at the redemptive context. How does this one sermon fit into the whole historical timeline of redemption, the, 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 um, the scarlet thread, if you will, of redemption? What's the significance of this? Well, if you were to look at it in terms of a bell curve, I mean, in, in the story of redemption, when Jesus preaches this sermon around this time in his ministry, it just spikes. God is very active and in essence, the redemption that has been promised for, for centuries is now beginning to unfold. It's now beginning to take place. So this is a huge point in redemptive history. Very, very dramatic change, and here's why. When you think about the flow of the Bible, say from Genesis to, Mal- to Malachi in the Old Testament, you got the whole flow of, of the Bible. The very final words spoken in the Old Covenant, Malachi, book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. A lot of us are familiar with these words, but you have to realize when they heard these words, that was it. In in essence, the book was closed. They may not have known it at that time, but there was no other revelation from heaven for about 400 years. So they had to hang on these final words. Yeah, they had all the books all the way back to Genesis to hang on as well. But these were the final words spoken. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's my version. The NASB says, with smite the land with a curse. That's what the word means. It's the word for curse. So, in other words, the people of God are kind of suspended with these words. If this person never comes to prepare the, the day, the awesomeness, you will remain under this curse and be smitten. As it stands now, Israel, as it stands now, people, there's there's curses looming over you. And unless the hand of God brings this Messiah and this voice to prepare the Messiah, you remain under this curse. Now, if if the people of God in the Old Testament knew anything or wanted anything to do with God, they would know the idea of blessings and curses because the entire law of the Torah is built around it. God went to great pains to teach them how to live, how to worship. And it was often given in terms of if you want to be blessed, here's what you have to do. But if you if you would prefer to be cursed and live under my curse, here's what here's what it takes to live under my curse. Live like this. Think like this. Do these things. Live like this. Think like this. Do these things if you want to be blessed. Well, obviously, who wouldn't want to be blessed by the one and only true God who is sovereign over all things? So their lives, in essence, were framed around the idea of desiring to be blessed by God. They, they, they didn't always do it right, and they got carried in the wrong direction with it, as we will see in this sermon. And Jesus is going to confront it. They got carried off, but in essence, 
That's what is there. This idea of wanting the blessing of God. They all wanted the blessing of God. They were well acquainted with this. They recited it back and forth to one another. The blessings of God. And so here comes, hopefully, their Messiah. And he's on the slope. And the very first words that come out of his mouth. Blessed. Blessed. So they would tune in. Because they're wanting to be blessed. That's what life is all about, isn't it? To be blessed by God. To have the favor of God. That's what drove them. So the final words in the Old Testament, in essence, are a curse. But the first words of the the new covenant, or the first words of the kingdom are, Be blessed, my people. That's what I'm all about. I bring the blessing. To you, which of course would mean the curse is also removed. And in essence, he's saying, you don't know. You don't really know how to be blessed. I mean, it's almost as if you could say, I've, I've observed you. I've walked north, south, east, west. I've observed you people and you don't really understand it. And I want you to be blessed. So let me share with you what that looks like. So it's a new era of redemption under this new covenant. Let me write these words on your heart and on your souls. And of course, from that point on, it gets very interesting because the content of the blessing is exactly opposite of what the people would want to hear or would ever dream of that could lead them to this state of being blessed. Because we know that in order to be happy, in this world, there are lots of things that have to fall into place, right? I mean, we kind of got to we got to get the things we want and our soul longs for in order for us to be blessed. So we think uh, obviously we, we need to have an abundance, at least a uh, portion of riches, because then we don't have to go to bed every night worrying, being all twisted up and anxious about, can I pay this bill? And will I have an am I taking Do I have college tuition paid for when my kids get that age? You know, finances are a big thing. And so we have to have a certain stockpile, right, in order to give our soul the rest that we're going to be well taken care of. We need power because that way people will respect us. There's nothing worse than being disrespected in this world. Just just glossed over. So we need some sort of aura of power. And we need popularity so people will want to be around us and will have friends and not be lonely as opposed to being bullied, to being the one kid in class that that nobody wants anything to do with. I mean, how can you possibly be happy under any other conditions than those? That's what our minds automatically think. And yet Jesus says just the opposite. And he begins by saying things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a poverty of soul that needs to happen before you have any hope of of experiencing the blessedness of the kingdom. What does that mean? Poor in spirit. And, And those that are hungry and thirst, that's not a good thing to be hungry and thirsty. And meek, to be does that mean to be pushed over and plowed over and to not demand your way all the time? To to demand to be heard? And persecuted? Are you kidding me? 
to be picked on? Isn't that the very thing we don't want? We don't ever want to put ourselves in an unsafe position where we'll get hurt. And that has to do with the very thing that our soul needs. If that's the case, then we need to dig into this stuff, don't we? We need to understand where are you coming from, Lord? The word blessed literally does mean, you know, blissful or happy, but it comes from the root, the Greek root word that has to do with being blessed, uh, irrelevant of your circumstances. In other words, it's, it, it's possible to be blessed. Your, your soul can be blessed, though the circumstances in which you're surrounded does not line up with it. And it comes with it comes from the Greeks would throw that word around and use it in describing their Greek gods because the Greek gods were up there and humanity's down here. Here's where you have death and you have sickness and, you know, and it's just not a good place to be a lot of times. But they can remain in a state of um, happiness because they don't have to deal with this down here. The circumstances. And so that root word carries in with this teaching. Because now we're getting somewhere because the world's understanding of our happiness really depends on the external circumstances that we face. It's the condition of our lives, right? That determines how much how money we have in the bank account, who our friends are, who, who we're in love with or not in love with. All these things have to do with making up our soul and determining whether it's happy or sad. So we think... And then we read just one beatitude and we think, how could this possibly be? How could my soul be happy if I have to face what I would view as a negative thing? And so now we're getting somewhere because then you realize, well, there are bad things that happen in this world. So how can I possibly experience this blessedness? Is it otherworldly? As described by the Greeks, is there a place that's far removed from this or someone or something or some source that the blessedness can come from? Because I really can't find it here because every day I'm going to face something here in this world that's not favorable. Let me share a few verses with you that will lead us to this true source of blessedness that irregardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves is in existence Psalm 68, 35, blessed be God. Psalm 72, 18, blessed be the Lord God. Psalm 119, 12, blessed art thou, O Lord. 1 Timothy 1, 11, the blessed God. In other words, Scripture teaches us that God is blessed. And when it says God is blessed, it doesn't mean that at that particular point he happened to be happy. We caught him on a good day. It means his very essence, his very character, who God is as a person all the time, eternally, and he's never changing, is he is always blessed. There is never a time in the experience of God's being that he is not fully blessed. That's who he is. He cannot help but to be blessed just as he is fully holy and righteous and pure all the time. Omnipotent, omniscient. Omnipresent, these things that he is all the time. It's a part of his being. He is blessed. And if he is blessed all the time, that's the source. And the idea is, well, what, how can I get that? How can I get that blessedness to come down here into this 
sick world or to my sick life. Well, we just not so long ago celebrated Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. It's, we, we need that character in us in order to experience the, blessed of the, king, the blessedness of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. How do we get that? It comes through Christ, the gift. And when we become Christians, it's not just it's not a external moral behavior. That's not what Christianity means. It means that Christ lives in us the hope of glory. First, second, Peter one, four puts it like this. Um, He's granted to us precious, magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The way that the, the happiness comes to us is only through God. Because God's blessed all the time, that's what we want. And that's how we get it. It's by pressing into God, by knowing God. And by sharing in that divine nature with the union of Christ and the Holy Spirit that lives in us. So the, the, this is all kingdom stuff. It's, Jesus doesn't really address the worldly things yet. The things of this world. And the resources that it has to offer. He's strictly talking about... Focusing on God and getting to know the king and the kingdom. So biblical happiness is not about superficiality or certain attitudes that self-help books often tell us. If you just think this way or you just think positive and life falls into place. Really? It's, or, or you need to arrange your circumstances and get rid of some friends and, and, and get new friends that think a certain way. It's all this external stuff that they're trying to get us to do. And yet Jesus doesn't go there at all. He is only talking about the internal, the inward man, the inward attitude that is based on the very character of God itself. And that's what sets us apart from any other teaching that you ever hear. It has to do with the inner man. And it's something that you will find that is absolutely impossible to obtain without the living Christ. Because it has to do with the blessedness of God. And that only comes to us through Christ. So really this teaching is not for, uh, will not apply to unbelievers until they become believers. Because then they will be stuck in only the baseline happiness that the world offers and never attain to kingdom happiness. Revelation 23, 22, 3 says no longer will there be anything accursed. So part of this, and that's that's Jesus when he comes again. Part of this power of this sermon. Jesus is wanting to to undo the curse in our lives. Undo the way we think and feel about things and see things and look at at things, the things that are the absolute dearest to us. So that's um, that realm of context and the redemptive context. That's how it fits into the Bible. Secondly, the political context won't spend any much time here at all. <clears throat> but you already know that the Jews are looking for what? The Messiah. They're looking for a king, have been longing for the king. We looked at that at Jesus' birth. There was, there was this, this atmosphere among uh, the Jewish community, everywhere you went, of this anticipation for a king. God promised him he's coming. 
And I can't think of a better time. They all thought every every century. I can't think of a better time for the Messiah to come than right now. Just like we anticipate the second coming. He's got to be coming soon. You hear that in prayers all the time. A century right around the based on the uh, signs that we see in the world. Jesus got to be coming soon. Well, they had the same anticipation of the Messiah coming, but their view of the Messiah wasn't what Jesus was. Their view of the Messiah, when they pictured him coming, he's going to be this mighty guy. I mean, this great, powerful leader that speaks with authority and fire in his voice. He's going to wield a sword. He's going to have great commanding abilities and he's going to commandeer and rally men around him. He's going to get them pumped up and then they're going to take it to the Romans. And they're going to squash them and put them down. And then we're going to have our political freedom. We're going to live in safety. No longer people telling us what to do and how to think and what we can do with our money. We can get on with our lives. We'll be free. That's what the Messiah is going to do for us. That was their idea. And Jesus doesn't go there at all. He doesn't entertain any. Of that kind of political thinking. He wasn't that kind of king. Even Pilate was stumped. Who is an authoritative political figure. You know in essence he's like. Are you a king? And if you're a king. What kind of kingdom you got here? What kind of kingdom is this? You don't even defend yourself. There's no power here. And. And in, in essence, you know, Jesus does say, well, he says, my kingdom's not of this world. I could change the circumstances here in, in less than a second, whereby all of this would be in total submission, whereby you would be on your knees because I could call for the angels that have helped me through the time here in my life here. And they, they would just change things real quick, talking about a sword pointed at somebody's throat. But, but that's not what my kingdom's about. It's from another world. It's not of this. So um, that's what we want to be thinking about. That's where the freedom lies. The freedom lies in here, not out there. It, 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 becomes, it, it becomes about this happiness Becomes about man and his creator. What are you going to do with that relationship? What are you going to do with the existence of God? It's a heart to heart kind of thing. That's where the freedom is that Jesus is offering. He's not after what uh, men can do, but about who men are. And then lastly, the religious context. We'll spend a lot of time on this. You know, in bits and pieces, because Jesus addresses each thing individually. But th- this is important because we have to understand what the religious groups would be thinking when they heard these kind of words. And we've talked about this before, but, you know, they, they could be broken into about four essential groups that made up the people of God in that day. You had the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Methodists, and the Catholics. No, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes and the Zealots. Quickly, you know that the Pharisees were very traditional, very strict, ritualistic, and they had the concept happiness is found in obeying the law. And they believed in the resurrection. You just got to be obedient, 
Follow the traditions and the commands. And in the afterlife, you got a, a good reward coming to you. So that's what happiness is all about. So when they hear Jesus talk about blessedness, remember, that's what they think it means. The observance. And it's coming in the next life. The Sadducees, they were more liberal. They didn't always take the Bible literal. They didn't believe in the, res, the um, resurrection, the afterlife. So they were more about happiness is kind of... Being modern is about getting what life has to offer you at the moment. Get all you can while you can, because this is all there is. So their happiness is found in that. The Essenes, they were the separatists among the religious people. Um, We know about the Essenes today because of the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries. We know more about their communities there. They were the separatists. They were the ones that said, I can't take this religious corruption in the church. I can't take this political corruption. We need to go out and form our own little community where we can just live purely before the, the God, uh, God. So they were the separatists of the day. So happiness for them is found in separation from the world. And then they're the zealots. We read about Simon the zealot in Acts this morning. They were the ones. Happiness is crushing a Roman. Happiness is killing a Roman because one less Roman, the better off we are. So they wanted things in terms of political freedom. Now, here's how John MacArthur sums it up. The Pharisees were saying, go back, go back. The traditions the zealots, I'm sorry, the um, Sadducees were saying, go ahead. You know, the modernism and the liberalism. The Essenes were saying, go out. And the zealots were saying, go against. They all had their own little thing going And the point that Jesus was making is, you're all wrong, every one of you. For the Pharisees, he was saying, religion is not a matter of external observance. For the Sadducee, he was saying, religion is not a matter of human philosophy invented to accommodate the new day. And to the Essenes, he was saying, religion is not a matter of geographical location. And to the Zealots, he was saying, neither is religion a matter of social activism. Ultimately, all of those things... Have a corner or a part of the truth. We, we do need to be socially involved. We need to be set apart unto God. We need to be contemporary. We need to be based on the past. But in and of themselves, they're external. And God is after what's on the inside. The Sermon on the Mount invades Jewish thinking with a blast. That true blessedness comes from the inside, not the outside. So that is where we are headed. And I'll be honest with you, as we read this, we're going to struggle because it doesn't fit with our paradigm. Even as believers, it doesn't always fit with what we think life is all about or how we think we can bring our souls to that happy place, so to speak. As a matter of fact, it would make a whole lot more sense. This whole sermon would make a lot more sense if you took the word blessedness out and you replaced it with the word miserable, wouldn't it? Miserable are those that are impoverished. Miserable are those that are persecuted. Miserable are those that are so meek. Miserable are those that are hungry and thirsty. It makes perfect sense when we read it in those terms. And yet Jesus flips it. He said, no, that's where the blessedness is found. That's where the happiness is found. How can that possibly be true? Well, just as a little... Snippet. Here's how it's true. Here's how it can make sense. It's because 
You can't fill a spiritual need with a physical entity. You can't touch your spirit with physical things. And that's what the world wants to do. We want to reach into this material world and we want to stuff our soul, our spirits with things to make them feel better, to get them to a certain place. And Jesus is going to tell us and show us why and how that does not work. But what does work is when you take the spiritual things and fill your spirit. That's where all of this is headed. You cannot fill a spiritual need with a physical substance. And the opposite is true. You can't fill a physical need with a spiritual substance in the sense that that's why James says, look, if somebody comes to you and they're physically cold and they, you can hear their stomach growling, they're hungry, really hungry. They may have not eaten for days. Don't give them a, a salvation pamphlet and give them a lecture about grace and send them on their way. Don't give them a theological lesson. Don't give them a spiritual lesson. Give them something to eat. Put something warm on them. They have a physical need. You can meet that. So both, both are true. It's faith and works. But you cannot fill a spiritual need with a physical substance. What do we hear? What are we surrounded with in today's culture? You fill your spiritual needs with physical things. What do you think? Why do you think advertising and marketing is so successful? What do they what do they do? How do they set the stage? They show you they make you aware that there's this need in your life. You're miserable about something. Your marriage could be falling apart. And what do they want you to do? Man, there's a new car. A new car will make you feel so much better. And so they're they're experts at showing us. The material things that are accessible, what you need if your family's falling apart, vacation or a vacation home. That will bring it all together. You need this. You need this. You need this. You need to, you need to get rich quick and invest in this. I show you how to do it. Your life's problems are all over. You can't fill a spiritual need with material things. The great Puritan Thomas Watson said, Things of this world will no more keep out trouble of spirit than a piece of paper will stop a bullet. He says, worldly delights are winged. And he's quoting Proverbs 23, 5. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. He gets it. The, pro, the, the wise man Solomon gets it. That I think, I don't know who wrote 23. May, hopefully Solomon. Unless I'm wrong. One of the wise guys. The, the material things are fleeting. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. And we, we're going to base the happiness and the, and the foundation of our soul on material things? That's not good. And yet, we still fall for it, don't we? If we're really honest. We still fall for it even as mature Christians. We still fall for the things that come by and the temptations of the world. Here's what you need. This will fill that hole. This is the putty for it right here. This is blessedness on a whole new level. Just a whole new level. And so as I close, I just want to challenge us all to hang in there and commit to 
surrender to the teachings of Christ. Let's just make a commitment. Acknowledge, you know, that there's something in our soul unless unless we've arrived. There's things in there that need to hear the word of God and to have the word of God applied to it. And I just would love for us to make a commitment. You know, Lord, I don't understand all of it, but I'm just going to surrender myself to it and we will be transformed. And we will be elevated to this new level, this kingdom level of what it means to be blessed for it to be well with our soul. Is there room for happiness in your soul? May God bless the preaching of his word.